0: Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area Hosanna to the son of David they were indignant do you hear what these children are saying they asked him yes replied Jesus have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night early in the morning As he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. We're going to skip ahead to verse 33, and we'll read the parable of the tenants there. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them they looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet
1: we've been tracking together as we've looked at Jesus teaching his announcement uh, the heart of the gospel the good news that he is bringing the kingdom of heaven and calling people to join in to repent as he brings heaven and earth together and we've seen if you've been with us throughout Matthew on this journey to Jerusalem, how people who know their Old Testament are expecting a king, a Messiah, that's the Jewish word for the anointed king, to come and do this, to restore Israel to greatness. A lot of them are expecting this to happen by the blade, by the sword. But greatness in Jesus' kingdom, we've started to see, looks different. We saw hints of that last week with Jesus' interactions with children, how in his back-to-front kingdom The first will be last, and the last will be first. And Jesus has given pictures of this kingdom, pictures of heaven breaking into earth as he's gone through the nation of Israel, heading towards Jerusalem, giving pictures of heaven being restored to the last, the least, and the lost, while he's gone toe-to-toe with the people who are meant to be leading Israel in godliness. Uh, We've seen a lot of mountain scenes in Matthew and Jesus and his disciples in this passage, in this section of Matthew, they are heading up a mountain. It's almost the ultimate mountain in the story. They started the trek up to Jerusalem, the Temple Mountain, the city on a mountain, the dwelling place of God. And people following Jesus are wondering if now's when Israel will be great again. If Jesus is going to make Israel great again, when Israel will be restored as the heaven on earth kingdom of priests Uh, but Jesus says to them as they're going up to Jerusalem it's not going to look like they want it to. He said this a few times to them and it's unclear whether they've kind of picked up the cues yet. He says when they get there the chief priests, the people who are meant to be leading Israel in godliness, they're going to team up with the Gentiles to crucify the Son of Man, the human ruler of the heavens and the earth. He'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then he'll be raised to life on the third day. But Jesus is going to give us a picture of God's kingdom as he takes up a cross, not a sword. Now, he's been talking about this for a while. Uh, it's not only not clear if his disciples don't get it, it's pretty clear that their mums don't get it. And so we get this scene on the road to Jerusalem in the chapter before the one Mel just read for us with the mother of James and John And now there's this cool theory in church history that this is Jesus' aunt. So it could be that she's asking for Jesus to look after his family, for his cousins, James and John, to be in this special place. She's thought to be Mary's sister. Uh, Maybe she wants to keep the honour, the glory in the family. Grant my sons this place of honour at your right and left in the kingdom. And Jesus says, well, the places on my right and left aren't up to me. Even if these disciples, James and John, will follow him and drink the cup he drinks, Even if they will take up their cross, this is not the nature of his kingdom, this quest for greatness. Jesus has in fact just told them they'll sit on thrones with him in glory, but these guys want these spots reserved for greatness and they're not listening to Jesus when he talks about what that looks like, that he's come to die, he's come to save the last and the least and the lost by dying. And so Jesus gives them a bit more of the upside-down nature of the kingdom. It's not going to be like Gentile kingdoms, kingdoms like Rome, where to be a ruler and sit on a throne is to dominate and destroy, to trample on people as you exercise power. God's kingdom involves great servants, those who put themselves in the lowly spots in the service of others. And this is what we should be striving for, isn't it, as we seek to live in the kingdom of Jesus. This idea that greatness is displayed in serving, it's not in the things that look impressive through worldly eyes, it's in the making coffee or doing the dishes after church or making sure kids' rooms are clean or volunteering in creche or kids' church or maintaining the garden or serving at food pantry during the week and there are people here who do a bunch of that stuff without being noticed. But it's not just in the life of our church community, it's in life in our community. Our gatherings are just a training ground for this way of living in the world. This way of service is displayed by us in our families, our networks, our workplaces as we embrace this pattern that Jesus calls us to and we become bright lights in a dark world, little pictures of heaven because this is what it looks like to follow the heaven-on-earth man. Jesus, the son of man who came to serve as a slave, dying a slave's death and giving his life as a ransom for many. This is the picture of the kingdom Jesus wants his followers to have in mind as he's approaching the city of Jerusalem, as he's heading to his death to open the floodgates of heaven so that heavenly life might break out on earth. As a picture of what's to come when the Son of Man renews all things, when heaven comes on earth, it does this now as we serve like Jesus. And now Jesus and his disciples are on the way up, they're ascending towards the heaven on an earth city. And on the way, they stop on another mountain. Mountains are a bit of a feature of the geography here, but also of the story of Matthew. And they're approaching Jerusalem, and they kind of pause. They're timing their arrival perfectly. They are arriving in Jerusalem at a carefully chosen time. It's the Passover. It's the festival when Israel remembers being created as a nation, experiencing salvation as God acts in judgment on Egypt. And at this time of year people would be flocking up the mountain to Jerusalem for Passover and as they go up the mountain they'd be singing psalms together psalms called the psalms of ascent from the book of psalms they'd sing words like this as they walked up the mountain looking to the temple kind of looking through the temple to the heavenly courts i lift my eyes to the mountains where does my help come from my help comes from the lord the maker of heaven and earth this gaze towards the heavens up the mountains as they head to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's another one of the Psalms of Ascent. Or Psalm 125, where those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, and the mountains around Jerusalem, like the ones Jesus and his disciples pause on, are a, a picture of the security the Lord of heaven and earth provides for his people. And so imagine the disciples singing these words, singing them with Jesus as they head for Passover, and having these words shape their expectations about what's to come when the Messiah arrives in Jerusalem. Now there are other songs sung at Passover time, songs that would be being sung in the city of Jerusalem, like Psalm 118. It's a Passover song where there's this idea about the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They are blessed. They come in a procession with branches in hand up to the altar, that point where heaven and earth do business, this is a song that would be sung at Passover time. It's a song that's on the lips of the people as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, coming in the name of the Lord to bring a new Passover. He even arrives on a donkey, we're told, to fulfill the prophets. This time it's from Zechariah chapter 9, which talks about God liberating his people through a king who'll come to establish peace between his people Israel and the nations around them, a king who'll come to bring salvation. The Lord's going to save his people through this king and create a shining, sparkling people who will shine in his land, like a city on a mountain, perhaps, as Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is coming to fulfil this picture of heaven arriving on earth, of salvation, of a, a new Passover, a new people being created, restored to do God's work in the world, to be his priestly people, his heavenly people. So when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with these songs ringing in the people's ears, the people following him and coming from their mouths, and he comes on a donkey, people's hearts are filled with hope. And they grab palm branches and join in the procession. as a picture of Psalm 118. And they head all the way to the temple to where the altar is used for sacrifices, for sin and guilt. And there we see Jesus showing what it looks like to come to restore a kingdom of priests by restoring the temple. We've got this famous scene where Jesus comes into the temple and he drives out those buying and selling. The the money changers who would be charging interest, making a quick dollar. And and the benches, we get specifically told, he goes to the benches of those selling doves. That's a quite specific meat seller in the temple, isn't it? Single those sellers out. But it's because doves were a quite specific type of meat. They are the sacrifice that the poor could offer as a sin offering. Leviticus if they couldn't afford other animals. These temple retailers are exploiting the poor, stopping them being restored to God, stopping them having access to the altar and so Jesus pulls together two Old Testament passages to describe what's going on here as he pronounces judgment on the temple. It's written, he says, the first bits from Isaiah, my house will be called a den of prayer. This is the same chapter in Isaiah that we saw last week when the eunuchs were brought into God's household this moment of recreation of this new people for God these people who couldn't enter the temple in the old testament law get a name and glory and greatness in the temple but also foreigners are brought into the temple it's a a chapter about God's plan for inclusion and Jesus is saying that's not going on here when he arrives are these outsiders the last and the least we brought up the mountain and into the temple, they'll ascend into this heavenly place because it's a house of prayer not just for Israel but for all nations. That's God's plan in the Old Testament for a faithful Israel gathered in by God after the exile and joined by the nations also being gathered in by God. But right now as Jesus arrives, unfaithful Israel is standing in the way of these plans. And so the second part of Jesus' judgment about the den of robbers, that comes from Jeremiah's prophecy of judgment. Israel kept thinking just because they had the temple, they could say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's actually what it says. It's not me just repeating for emphasis. Jeremiah does this. They thought they could do whatever they wanted because look at this big temple that shows that God's with us, but they've turned it into a den of robbers, Jeremiah says as he pronounces judgment on Israel. They can't keep saying, look at the temple while they're oppressing the lowly and the vulnerable. Ultimately, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah says that's what loses them the temple and life on God's mountain with him. And so Jesus is saying now, at this moment in history, the people running the temple in his day are just like Israel was when exile happened, oppressing the lowly, not representing God at all and facing judgment. And at the same time this happens, at the same time that Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple and on its leaders, who comes flocking to Jesus in the temple to find restoration and new life, healing, a taste of heaven. It's the lowly, the blind and the lame, those who Jesus has been healing along the way, the poor and the oppressed, the people who know that the kingdom is for them, the one that Jesus is bringing And did you see what it is, as Mel read, that causes the chief priests and the teachers of the law to snap? It's not just the lowly are flooding into their house and making the place messy, it's the children. It's always the children. I can relate a bit to noisy children making you snap. But here the children are singing and Jesus has just been talking, as we saw last week, about children being a picture of the children of God and these anti-priests, they hate the disruption that Jesus has brought to the temple. They hate the disruption brought by the poor, the blind, the lame, and the noise of these children as they shout Hosanna to the son of David. The leaders of Israel are indignant. Do you hear what they're saying? They ask him. How dare they? But Jesus is the son of David who is bringing the kingdom to God's house and cleansing and restoring the kingdom from there outwards. And this all is a picture of Jesus kingdom where the last become first this is what it looks like to restore heaven on earth for God's house to become a house of healing and restoration and resurrection a a picture of heaven on earth new life but for that to break in for God's kingdom to come this salvation just like it did in the exodus in the Passover it requires judgment judgment to fall The priests have become like Egypt, like Rome. They've become like the pagan rulers who lorded over those Jesus came to bring home. And so this section of Matthew, as we head up to the trial of Jesus, to salvation breaking through, through his death and resurrection, it's about Jesus announcing a new Passover that comes not just with salvation, but with judgment. And we're going to look together at three episodes that make this clear from this moment in the temple onwards. First, straight away, you get the fig tree scene. Now, there's a weird anti-Eden vibe going on here. Jesus cursing a tree that's bearing no fruit. It's not that Jesus hates trees, but he's making a point. The unfruitful leafy tree withers at Jesus' command. A withering fig tree is a picture of judgment coming on unfruitful Israel, also in Jeremiah. From right after that bit, he quotes about the temple. Jesus doesn't just hate trees. He's making a point about the fruitlessness he finds when he reaches Jerusalem. A withering tree is a picture of exile, of being disconnected from life with God, disconnected from the land, from Eden. Jesus' little curse miracle is him enacting this idea, saying that Israel's leaders are about to take them into the ultimate exile. The chief priests then they go toe to toe with Jesus in the temple, by what authority are you doing all this stuff? By what authority do you claim to be bringing this kingdom you're teaching about? Who gave this to you? And he says they've got it all wrong. They've missed who God is. They're going to miss out. In fact, they're going to face judgment. He says the lowly, they're pictures of sin and shame. The tax collectors and prostitutes, they're entering the kingdom of God ahead of the Pharisees and the chief priests who won't even get in. Judgment is going to fall on the high and mighty while the lowly and despised are being saved and brought into the kingdom. And then he tells the parable that Mel read for us, the second of our three pictures of judgment, where a farmer plants a vineyard. He builds a wall and he digs a winepress. He builds a watchtower. It's a place primed for fruitfulness. He subcontracts some workers, but at harvest time, he sends his servants looking for the fruit. And the tenants, they refuse to share. In fact, they beat and kill and stone the servants, and so the owner sends his son to gather the harvest, to come looking for the fruit. And the tenants kill the son. The son doesn't find the fruit in the vineyard. And Jesus stops and he asks the crowd, and remember this is in the temple where he's going toe-to-toe with the leaders where they just ask him, whose authority are you doing this by? He says to these people listening on, what should happen to the tenants when this happens? What should the owner do? And they say the owner should kill the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else, someone who'll share the harvest with him, someone who'll produce fruit for the owner. And Jesus isn't being random here as he tells this story with this imagery. There's a a song in Isaiah about a beloved one planting a vineyard. This vineyard on a fertile hillside, the, the planter of the vineyard builds a watchtower and a winepress. There are walls around it to mark out the vineyard and he expects fruit. But when he goes looking, the fruit is bad. And the bad fruit means the one who plants is going to destroy the vineyard and make it a wasteland. And Isaiah doesn't leave this song out there for us to interpret. He tells us it's a song about exile. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the fruit God's looking for in the vineyard is justice but instead he finds bloodshed. And it's a cool thing, if you go back to that passage, there's a little footnote that says, these words rhyme in Hebrew, It's lost on us, justice and bloodshed, righteousness and distress. There's a poem, it's rhyming, it's wordplay, but what he's going looking for as fruit, justice and righteousness. And when he fails to find it, that earns judgment. And that's what Jesus says is now falling on Israel because its leaders are bad fruit then in the midst of this parable he quotes that same passover psalm being sung in the temple psalm 118 about the idea of a new building project a restoration project something god's building with a big stone a new temple and jesus says this building project the kingdom it's going to involve chucking out those not producing fruit taking the kingdom away from those who aren't producing fruit and giving it to people who will. But the stone will also act as judgment. Anyone who falls on it will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The vineyard will be taken from Israel's leaders, from Israel if it won't recognize its king, and given to people who will produce fruit. This stone of judgment won't just bring life in this new building project, but will break and crush those opposing God's plans, those who kill the owner's son. And the people Jesus is speaking to, they know exactly what's going on with this reference to Isaiah. They know exactly what Jesus is saying and who he's pronouncing judgment on. They know it's them. And they start looking for a way to arrest him, but they can't because they're afraid of the crowd who think he's a prophet. Now, there's a couple of scene-setting moments before our third picture of Jesus bringing judgment as he brings the kingdom. The Pharisees, they keep trying to trap Jesus to, to find reasons, to find grounds to arrest him. And one of the traps involves this question about Caesar, the ruler of the Gentiles who lords it over people and uses violence to trample others. And there's an interesting dynamic going on with this question. They are going to pick Caesar in just a moment in Matthew when it comes to Jesus' trial and handing him over To Pilate but also in the future in the near future they are going to lead a rebellion against Caesar they're going to not want to pay his taxes and they're going to take up the sword it's a weird trap and Jesus doesn't spring it the way they hope he will he says show me a coin now this isn't a passage about the separation of church and state or about tax policy though you might draw some implications from there It's a passage about who people belong to. And so he says, whose image is on this coin? Whose image? Whose likeness? Caesar's, they say. And coins are these little images of the God, king of Rome. His image was what made the piece of metal as valuable as it claimed to be, that his power stood behind it. And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what has his image on it, what belongs to him. But give to God what is God's. Give to God what has God's image on it. Pick a side, pick a kingdom. God's kingdom brought by Jesus. Or the kingdom not just of Caesar. We're going to see as he rebukes the Pharisees, it's the kingdom of the serpent. And so Jesus launches into these seven woes against the Pharisees, showing that they're not the people of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount or the Law and the Prophets. They're not representing God they can't lead people to life. He says, don't be like the Pharisees who love to be seen as great. They've got this picture of greatness that looks just like the world. They want to be high and mighty, like the rulers of the Gentiles, and they're horrible guides to what God is like. Jesus says, they're hypocrites who don't bring people into God's kingdom, but shut the door in people's faces. They won't even get in. He says, they tied their spice rack While missing justice and mercy at the heart of the law. The owner of the vineyard comes looking for fruit. And instead of finding justice and righteousness. Finds people who tithe their spices rather than loving the poor. Rather than practicing mercy and faithfulness and justice. Woe after woe from Jesus exposes the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And condemns them to judgment. He says they're children of snakes, a brood of vipers, children of the serpent. They can't or won't escape the consequences of what they're about to do and neither will Jerusalem. And Jesus says this judgment, it's not this future thing he's talking about here, it's coming on this generation. Judgment is falling on the people he is talking to. Jesus has this conflicted relationship with this city, this city on a... A mountain he wants to be like a mother hen gathering up his children gathering up Israel saving his people only the leaders of the temple are not willing and so their house their city is going to be left desolate this is a pronouncement of exile 2.0 Jesus quotes that Passover psalm again at this point the one that was on the lips of the kids and he says you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's pronouncing that he will come as king and they will be judged. And so here's moment number three, the pronouncement of judgment. And this is where things get heavy. It's in Matthew chapter 24. As Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the giant stones of the impressive building at the top of the mountain being thrown down, the end of Jerusalem, the end of Zion being God's place in the world. In the other Gospels, he's kind of doing this double thing where he's talking about himself. But here it's slightly different. The emphasis is on the building that his disciples think is so great. Jesus is unimpressed. He says, it's all going to fall. Every stone will be thrown down. And as the disciples go to the mountain of Olives, they ask, when is this going to happen? When is heaven going to come down in judgment? And Jesus brings these big picture events together. The destruction of the temple, this idea from Daniel of the abomination that causes desolation, judgment, and lots of people think too he's talking about the end of the world here. All these are implications, he says, of one event, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, the moment Jesus has been proclaiming since the beginning, where he arrives in salvation and judgment, where he becomes the victorious son of man who rules heaven and earth from heaven and who will return to make all things new on earth. This is Jesus unpacking the judgment part that starts with this generation he's speaking to, showing how the destruction of God's son, his true temple, the son of the vineyard owner, his death on a cross brings about the end of Israel as it was. And we see pictures of this at the cross when the curtain of the temple tears when he's killed, a picture of the kingdom being taken from Israel, their house being left desolate, And this is unveiled fully when the temple is destroyed. When the rocks that Jesus is talking about are thrown down in 70 AD because Israel's leaders choose the sword. They reject Jesus and the kingdom he brings and they choose to fight fire with fire. They want greatness that looks like throwing the Romans into the sea and they get wiped out. And the course is set for that destiny when they reject Jesus. Jesus predicts this. It's a picture of ultimate exile from God brought about by rejecting Him. He says at the coming of the Son of Man there will be signs in heavens. At the moment the Son of Man comes as King the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is a bit of a throwback to Genesis 1. It's a picture of decreation, of turmoil in the heavens reflecting turmoil on earth. And again, Jesus is quoting the prophets. He's quoting Isaiah again, another prophecy about judgment, about the day of the Lord when God would come as judge and all these things would happen, word for word. The catch is in Isaiah, this is not a prophecy of judgment on Jerusalem. It's a prophecy of judgment against Babylon. But now Jesus is saying Jerusalem has become Babylon. Jerusalem has earned the punishment for God's enemies because they reject the son. They kill him and throw him out of the city. And Jesus said once that darkness had happened, once the abomination that causes desolation happens, and this is a a thing from Daniel that's about firstly a, a Greek king putting up an idol image on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem, this sacrilegious thing, but once the real thing, the real abomination, the real desecration happens where the son of man is nailed to a cross, what blasphemy. Once that's happened, the Son of Man will turn up in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Now, when we read these words, it does sound like it's the second coming, doesn't it? And there's probably a foreshadowing of that, but there's this confusing thing going on where the Greek word for coming is the same as the Greek word for going, which I'm sure created all sorts of problems in Greek family life. But here Jesus is talking about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's a quote from Daniel but in Daniel the Son of Man is entering the throne room of God to rule and reign as the human ruler of the heavens and the earth and so Jesus is picturing the fulfillment of that moment and when the Son of Man does this when he takes his throne he's going to send out his angels his spiritual team to gather the elect to save his people from one end of the heavens to the other which is then what he does with his disciples his human team as he sends us to go into the world and make disciples, as an expression of his rule over the heavens and the earth, as he gives us this new task as a priestly nation, as image bearers who reflect heaven on earth, as we serve each other and love the lowly, as we join the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. And see, the reason I think while we might want to read this as being about a rapture or a second coming, the future, Once again, Jesus says something. this is something this generation will see. It's coming soon, this moment of judgment. They'll see the abomination that causes desolation, the ultimate desecration of God's presence in the world. His true temple, as the glorious image of God, is nailed to a cross, not by a kingdom of priests, but by a kingdom of pagan rulers who rule just like Caesar. Jerusalem has become Babel. The sky will go dark like it did in the Passover when God saved his people and judged Egypt because the same thing is happening. At the cross, God will be saving his people and judging those who reject him. The curtain in the temple tears, everything changes. Judgment and salvation come all at once and Jerusalem will experience God's judgment while those covered by the blood of the lamb will experience salvation. It's a new Passover, a new exodus. New life as part of God's kingdom of priests for those who put their faith in the Son. This act of crucifying the king seals the fate of Jerusalem. The kingdom is taken from them, it's trampled, it's destroyed, the temple's removed, and God's kingdom is given to those who he hopes will produce fruit. And so what does this mean for us? This announcement of judgment on a people in the first century who are meant to embrace God's king when he came, but instead killed him and threw him outside the city. What it means for us is that the kingdom of heaven did arrive in that generation. That Jesus now reigns as the king who turned the tables, the king who made the last first and the first last, who took the kingdom away from those who tithed their spices but didn't love the poor and gave it to the lowly and the oppressed and the foreigner, and that's most of us, So that we might be united to Jesus, the fruitful servant, the stone this new building project is built on, the seed that produces an abundant harvest of fruit, so that connected to him by his spirit, we might produce the fruits that the vineyard owner is looking for. Love and justice and righteousness. As we take up our cross and follow Jesus, pursuing a new picture of greatness. See, in the midst of these announcements of judgment, someone comes to Jesus and says, What's the greatest commandment in the Lord? What does greatness look like? What's God really on about? And Jesus says it looks like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus, the one who's come to fulfil the law and the prophets, teaches us what greatness looks like and shows us what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It looks like love for God. It looks like service. It looks like seeing God's heart so that as we worship Him, we represent Him, as we find life in His kingdom, we live in His kingdom and so love our neighbours. Seeing that real love for God is expressed the way Jesus expresses us. Greatness is becoming servants, humbling ourselves, working for God's glory rather than our own so that God might exalt us rather than us being self-justifying, self-exalting people. Greatness is found in the life of Jesus and his death as he gave his life as a ransom for many. And when he comes in all his glory and is seated on his throne and the nations are gathered in by his earthly and heavenly followers, he will come looking for fruit, looking for love and justice and righteousness, in the people he's called to be his vineyard what that judgment then means for us is that when judgment comes for us we want to be the fruitful people of God who are connected to the fruitful person of God found in Christ when he returns in his glory he'll separate the sheep and the goats he'll gather his harvest and you want to be a sheep not a goat Because those who are the blessed children of God, those who put their faith in Jesus and received him as king, will receive the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. This has always been God's plan. What an extraordinary claim. While the goats, those who join the priests in Jerusalem, rejecting Jesus as king of the heavens and the earth, they won't get in but will receive death and judgment, exile from God. And it all hangs on faithfully joining the kingdom of Jesus, repenting, turning from other kingdoms and joining his kingdom. Faith isn't just belief. Faith is expressed in love and obedience, in doing what Jesus commands. Faith is displayed when we represent Jesus' vision of greatness, understanding not just what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for, who we've been saved to be. And the people of the kingdom will be those who show our love for God and his son by how we love our neighbour. Not the high and mighty, but the hungry and thirsty, the stranger, the sick, the prisoner, the lost, the last and the least. Because when we love this way, in justice and righteousness and mercy, not just tithing our spice racks, Jesus says when we do this, we're doing it for him. In fact, when we do this for a brother and sister, we're doing it to him of life in the body of jesus life in the kingdom and when we love this way that's when the kingdom of heaven is breaking into earth now the rule and reign of the son of man being displayed in earth as it is in heaven that's when we become a shining city on a mountain living temples what jerusalem failed to be let's pray Heavenly Father, this is heavy, this idea that the proclamation of the kingdom doesn't just involve salvation, but judgment as well. And that judgment will fall on those who reject your son. And that salvation will come for those who find life in your son. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be your fruitful people, that we might realise that this gift given to us in Jesus through his death and resurrection, salvation by grace, through faith, through his perfect obedience, it's a gift to be taken up and held out to the world as we take on the nature of servants, as we seek to bring a picture of heaven to the world, as we love those you love, as we practise greatness in the kingdom, seeing the first as the last, and the last as the first. That greatness is caught up in the least of these. Lord, we pray that we might find ways to serve each other, to love one another in our need, but also to love our neighbours as expressions of our love for you, so that when Jesus returns, he sees the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives.